You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Okay, let's turn to God's Word, Job chapter 32 and chapter 33. If you're, the words will come up on the screen as well, but if you're uh, using the Pew Bible, you will find that on page 533, page 533. <clears throat> we'll read the first few verses. So, these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakil, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. Looking at you, uh, very few of you, I think, I shouldn't say this, uh, would have anger management issues, as they say. I don't know if you ever lose your temper. I don't know if you ever get angry. Some of you will get uh, angry in public very quickly. Your fuse is very short. Others of you will have a very serene face, and you will smile sweetly all the time, and yet inside you are ready to kill. Uh, But you would never know that from the way that you look. I think all of us suffer from anger in different ways. And I'm not sure which form of anger is more difficult to deal with. The person who snaps at you straight away, who gets angry, or the person who keeps it in. And it's it's difficult with our anger because there can be all kinds of problems, as we will see. And if you're young, especially, being, being angry, an angry young man, because that's what we're looking at this morning. Uh, Elihu, for those of you who don't know the story of Job, Job has suffered tremendously. He's an older man who's lost everything. He's lost his children. He's lost his home. He's lost his health. His wife tells him to curse God and die. And he has three older friends who come to him when he's sitting on a rubbish heap, scraping off his sores with broken pottery, and they try and uh, tell him that it's his fault. He needs to repent and so on. And there's a young man who we're introduced to here just now who has been there all the time, listening to this, watching this, and now he gets to speak, and he's raging. He he became very angry with Job. Now, the chapters in which Elihu speaks, and there's no response to him from Job, and there's no comment on whether what he says is right or wrong, they're some of the most difficult chapters in the whole Bible. Elihu is not mentioned at the beginning of the book, and he's not mentioned at the end of the book, and some people think that this, is, uh, this has been something that's added later on. But I think it fits very, very well with the poem. I think it's a kind of breathing space before God speaks, between the friends and between God speaking. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from, and I hope that uh, we'll learn some of that this morning. Now, Elihu is uh, a Buzzite, 
must be great to be a Buzzite, uh, which means basically he's a descendant of Abraham. The word angry is repeated four times. He's angry because uh, he is accusing Job of uh, trying to justify himself. He's angry because the friends have not been able to answer. And he's one of these guys who's sitting there and he's going, I could do a better job than that. It's like you could be sitting here this morning and you could say, this is so boring, I could give a much better sermon than that. Um, if you're a younger person, you could, I've heard people say that um, we're privileged to have Sinclair Ferguson preaching with us uh, in, in the evenings and somebody phoned me up and said, how's Sinclair getting on? And I said, oh, he's, he, did, he did all right. I'll, I'll teach him a thing or two about preaching. And they just started laughing. And of course they started laughing. What a stupid, I mean, it was an ironic joke remark. But if we really thought that, I've met young guys who are like that, saying, if, just let me do it. Let me sort them out. And this is what Elihu is doing. He's saying, I can do it. I can, I, I can fix this. I've got so much to say. Now, all of that isn't necessarily negative about him. But it is often the case that passion and anger is often misplaced. Advising someone or counseling someone from an angry heart can be incredibly dangerous. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, never open the door to the devil. When you lose your temper, you open it wide. It could not be wider. Nothing opens the door more widely than anger. And for this good reason, the moment you are controlled by your temper, you are no longer able to reason you are no longer able to think, you can no longer give a balanced judgment, for you are altogether biased on one side and against the other side. Is there anything that leads to more trouble than anger? Things said in a bitter and angry moment, you would almost cut your tongue off if you could to get them back, and sometimes though forgiven, they leave permanent wounds and scars. What havoc is wrought in the world by sinful anger." Now, you know that. You know that. You know that you have said things that you wish that you had never said. And you know that the words that you have said will stick with someone far more than the time you hit them. Because it hurts. And you regret having said things. Well, maybe, maybe I'm presuming too much. Let me put it this way. I know that I have said things in anger that I to my dying day, will always regret. And I thank the Lord for his mercy and his grace in, forg in forgiving my sin and the sins of the tongue. We can say things in anger that do so much harm. Well, Elihu goes on. Let me just go back to everyone. So Elihu, son of Barakal the Buzzite, said, I am young in years and you are old. This is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty, that gives him understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me, I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke, I listened to your reasoning while you were searching for words. I gave you my full attention, but not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Do not say we have found wisdom, let God refute him, not man. But Job has not marshaled his words against me, 
and I will not answer him with your arguments. They are dismayed and have no more to say. Words have failed them. Must I wait now that they are silent, now that they stand there with no such reply? I too will have my say. I too will tell what I know, for I am full of words, and the spirit within me compels me. Inside I am like bottled up wine, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak and find relief. I must open my lips and reply. I will show partiality to no one, nor will I flatter any man, for if I were skilled in flattery, my maker would soon take me away. Now there's a lot in there. What's in there? First of all, the arrogance of youth. He says he's young, but it's also possible to be wise. He talks about these older men and the feebleness of their speeches. He doesn't know how to flatter, he says, so Job, you better be prepared for some straight talking. He also, to be honest, goes on a bit. He's a bit long-winded. Now, despite what Eiler joked at then, you will never hear or see that here from me. Um, it, it can happen. There are occasionally, uh, when I stand at the door there, people go out and uh, that was a bit long today, and I'm thinking I cut it short. But when you're younger, you think you can say a lot and everyone's going to listen to every single word that you say. Endless Elihu. Basically, he takes 24 verses to say, let me talk. I'm going to speak. It's not really the way to go. Now, there are other things that are wrong with this. He lacks what might be called pastoral warmth. He's theoretical. He takes great slabs of truth and uses them to hammer people. In such distress, one man writes, tears of fellowship with suffering are far more profitable than lectures in harsh theology. There's a sense in which Elihu knows the doctrines of grace in his mind, but does not apply them in his heart. And there are some of you who know the Bible and who know the truth, but you have no idea how to apply it graciously to people. There are others of you who are very gracious to people and very relational and very connected, but you've got nothing to communicate because you don't know the doctrines. We need both. Elihu is also egocentric. Nineteen times he uses the word I or me. He is very self-important. Most of us, the number one subject of our conversation is us. I, me. He's patronizing. He uses the language of modesty to disguise arrogance. He doesn't offer to pray with Job. And he is wrong because God does appear to Job. He's wrong because he doesn't know everything. He doesn't know about the heavenly court and Satan at the beginning. He doesn't know the real reasons behind Job's suffering. So those are all the things that are wrong with him. But there are also some things that are really right. He's been a good listener. He kept silent and really did listen to what was said. He's courteous. There is genuine deference for age and for experience. And he does tell truth. In the midst of all this blustering, there are some real gems. But now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I'm about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me then if you can. Prepare yourself and confront me. I'm just like you before God. I too have been taken from clay. 
No fear of me should alarm you, nor should my hand be heavy upon you. He introduces himself. He talks about the need for revelation. You have said in my hearing, I heard the very words, I am pure and without sin, I am clean and free from guilt. Yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. But I tell you, in this you are not right, for God is greater than man. Why do you complain to him that he answers none of man's words? He's right to say that revelation is necessary. He's right to say that age alone does not bring wisdom. He's right to say that Jesus can reveal things to the babes and to the unlearned. And he's right to give glory to God. He's also right about being young. Young people, you say, we are just as human as anybody else. He's right to acknowledge his own weaknesses. Even his anger is not necessarily wrong. Zeal for God and his truth is important. I would rather have an angry young man than an insipid, couldn't care less one. You know, the kind of thing, the stroppy teenager. How was school today? All right. How'd you get on today? All right. How are you? All right. How's life? All right. I mean, you know, that's a, and you get, you know, older people like that as well, that just, you know, everything is just flat and dull and boring and just dreadful people. And you say, well, I don't get angry. Yeah, that's because you don't get anything. That's because you're walking around like a corpse. I mean, at least someone who gets angry has got some life in them. And there is a place for getting angry. That we, there's a challenge that comes in there. Sometimes we need people like Elihu to challenge. We need people to be direct. Unlike the friends, Elihu, you'll notice, refers to Job by name. He calls him by his name. He's bold. Preachers have to be as bold as brass. Jeremiah 15, 20, I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but not overcome you, for I am with you to rescue you and to save you, declares the Lord. Sometimes when you're teaching God's word, you've got to say things that you know will upset people. I love the story of the Anglican priest in a logging town in the U.S. and preaching on the Ten Commandments. He rephrased them. Do not covet, do not steal, and do not cut the end off your neighbor's logs, which kind of got to a point of a particular difficulty that some people were having. Yeah, there is enormous value in people being able to express what they feel and what they think passionately, and it's not wrong for Christians to, to discuss things. Now, both myself and Annabelle, she's not here so I can say this, we come, both come from backgrounds in which the way that we learn is to passionately argue. And sometimes, if we do that to one another and you come in and you've come from a very different background, you think, boy, this marriage is in big trouble. I'll tell you when our marriage is in big trouble, when there's not a word. Then there's big trouble. That's enormous trouble. But actually, having a passionate disagreement about something, I realize sometimes it's a bit overwhelming. Um, I, 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 I realize it's a personality thing. I like doing that. I like hearing what people have to say, and I, I like someone saying it with conviction, and try not to take things personally. And I do think we could do with more honesty and openness and passion in the Christian church. 
I hear this word a lot, dialogue. Let's have a dialogue or a conversation with one another. I'm, I'm beginning to get to really, really hate it. Because I tell you what it really means. It means something that happened in Dundee this week. Where Tony Campolo and his wife came and had a dialogue about um, same-sex marriage and so on. It wasn't a dialogue. It was a complete setup. It was a conversation. Trying to put across a particular point of view. I am so glad I wasn't there. I couldn't go because I just had a dialogue at the Scottish Parliament and was exhausted. But um, I'm so glad I wasn't there. Because you see, the whole thing was set up that if you disagreed or wanted to express a different point of view, oh, but you're breaking the rules. You're not being respectful. You're hurting people. You know, this is about healing. This is about Christians being together and all being nice and all ultimately agreeing with one another even if we disagree. And I tell you what's wrong with that. This is God's word and we don't have the right to muck around with it or to dialogue with it and compromise it. And I would rather someone was really, really passionate, even if, even if I thought they were wrong, because they, but they were passionate because they had a love for God and for his word, than they were just trying, let's make sure that we don't disagree with one another. It's better to disagree, to speak the truth. Yes, to speak the truth in love. But you need to be able to speak the truth. And I think that is uh, one of the things that Elihu can teach us. I think another thing is this. He does try a middle way. And this I, I find interesting. Job's friend have said that suffering is a punishment for sin. Job denies this, but he does seem at times to implicate God and claim that God is unfair. Now, I don't think ultimately he does that. But I think Elihu points to something which Job actually does. And it's this. It is the very heart of faith to believe in God's love when all the evidence around us seems to suggest otherwise. It is the very heart of faith to believe in God's love when all the evidence around seems to suggest otherwise. He's saying that God seems to be sending him suffering as a warning. Now, Elihu goes on to talk about God speaking. First of all, through dreams. For God does speak, now one way, now another, though man may not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn man from wrongdoing and keep him from pride, to preserve his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. God uses dreams, he says, to terrify people against future pride and wrongdoing. In chapter 7 and verse 14, Job talks about how dreams, God has spoken to him through dreams. And they're nightmares. Now, we have to be very, very careful about the whole dream thing. All of us dream. We now know that all of us dream basically all the time. And our subconscious is working away and working away. You will go absolutely insane if you remember all of your dreams and you wake up every morning and try and interpret them. Most of your dreams just come out of your subconscious. They are absolutely fascinating but they are largely due to too much cheese or lots of other things. They are not, what does this mean when God, God speaks? However, God is sovereign 
and He can speak to us through our subconscious as much as through our conscious. And I am well aware of uh, people, and I would include myself in this, who have had God speak through dreams. We had a young Muslim man about 10 years ago walked into the church here. Stayed in the flats up in the Hawk Hill. One night, he was sound asleep, he had a dream, and he didn't know whether it was a dream or a vision. He, he, he said, I, can't, I honestly can't say whether I was awake or not. But he said, in my dream, I opened up a Bible, and a smell of perfume came from it. And he says, I woke up, and I thought, what does this mean? And I looked out the window, and I saw your church tower, and he said, I have to come to church. And he came for six Sundays in a row. He was a son of an imam. I don't know what God has done to him, uh, or how God has worked in his life since then. I know somebody else who was bitterly, bitterly opposed to the gospel and in the course of the night had a nightmare, which was, he, again, he wasn't sure whether it was a dream or a vision, and God spoke to him in that way. And I don't dispute at all that God can speak in that way. I don't despise that. I say you have to be very, very careful about it. You have to be careful in terms of what you interpret, and you also have to work out you know, is that God speaking to me, or is it the devil, or is it just my own subconscious? And that's why the Word of God is much surer and much more certain. But God, I think, Elihu is right. God can speak in that way. Here's another way that he speaks that is also you have to be very careful about. Or a man may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in his bones so that his very being finds food repulsive and his soul loathes the choicest meal. His flesh wastes away to nothing and his bones once hidden now stick out. His soul draws near to the pit and his life to the messengers of death. Does God speak through sickness? Yes. Again, be as careful about that as you would with dreams. Not every illness is a message from God. But they can be. C.S. Lewis, in his famous words, said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes you will wander away from God. You will ignore God. You won't listen to God. But what causes you to listen is when you experience sorrow and pain. And I know so many people for whom illness and sickness, horrible though it is, has ended up being a means of tremendous blessing for them. The purpose of all of this, and Elihu I think gets this right, is surely to save us. Yet if there is an angel on his side as a mediator, one out of a thousand, to tell a man what is right for him, to be gracious to him and say, spare him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for him. Then his flesh is renewed like a child's. It is restored as in the days of his youth. He prays to God and finds favor with him. He sees God's face and shouts for joy. He is restored by God to his righteous state. Then he comes to men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, but did not get what I deserved. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and I will live to enjoy the light. It is tough, really, really hard. It's too cliched just to say to someone, well, don't worry, God's speaking to you in your, in your pain. But I think that it is a, um, 
it is true that's, that that so often happens. We're being warned by God about, we're, we're being shown our own frailty, and we're also being warned about sin. Simon Vell says this, the extreme greatness of Christianity lies in the fact that it does not seek a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use for it. Does God heal? Yes, he does. Does God heal every sickness? No, he doesn't. And those who teach that only, if only you have enough faith, you will be healed, are teaching a perverted gospel that hurts and harms a lot of people. God takes our pain and our suffering. And yes, he may supernaturally heal, but he will supernaturally use it. Suffering can be remedial. There's an ancient Buddhist saying that says this. It talks about suffering being like whether we're an egg or a potato in boiling water. What happens to the egg in boiling water? It goes hard. What happens to the potato? It goes soft. Suffering is like that. Some people suffer and they become hard and bitter and cold and cynical. And other people suffer and they become open and more loving and more gracious and more kind. Elihu surely is, is right in saying that there can, there can be a remedial purpose for suffering. But I think most of all, surely the message that comes to us when we suffer is this, that, that we can't heal ourselves and we can't save ourselves and we can't preserve ourselves. The arrogance for Elihu returns though, doesn't it? God does all these things to a man twice, even three times, to turn back his soul from the pit, then the light of life may shine on him. Pay attention, Job, and listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak up, for I want you to be cleared. But if not, then listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. I think the lesson I want to take out of this in terms of finishing is that the not everything Elihu says is right, but there are, there's an absolute gem in there when he looks for an angel, when he looks for someone to pay a ransom, when he looks for a mediator. Eliphaz told Job in chapter 5, call if you will, but who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Elihu says, there is an angel who can come to you. Job knows that an angel is not enough. And earlier on he has said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth. Job cries out in chapter 9, if only there were someone to arbitrate between us to lay his hands upon us. Job was of the family of Ram, which suggests that one of his descendants would be King David and ultimately Jesus Christ. And that's the solution, that's the answer that angry young Elihu is looking for, if only there was someone. That's what despairing Job is looking for, if only there was someone. And that's what you and I need, if only there was someone for us, someone for my pain, someone for my hurt, whether physical or psychological, emotional, spiritual, someone to take my sin, someone to take all my grief, and pain, and to carry all my sorrow. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Job, Elihu, sorry, rather, says about Job that he needs the light of life to shine upon him. That is it. In all your troubles, the one you need to turn to is the one who came to be the light of the world. In all your anger, it is him you need to speak to. Do you know this? Don't fall for the Disneyland view of the world. When you feel really, really angry and you say, oh, I shouldn't feel anger. That's really, really bad. Maybe there's a very good reason for angry. Maybe you should be angry about lots of things. Maybe there's a reason for you to be angry at the world and to be angry at your life and to be angry at all the different things that are going on. Maybe you've got plenty of hurt and bitterness and rage within you and someone coming to you and saying, now, chill out, suppress it, keep it down. Maybe that's the very wrong thing to say. Maybe what you need is to be able to have someone who you can pour out all your anger to, pour out all your pain, pour out all your sorrow, and know that he takes it, and know that he deals with it. I think it's, well, let me apply this just in in two ways, although it really self-applies. For those of us who are Christians, we ourselves will experience anger in many different ways. Take it to the Lord. Tell him why you are angry. And when you talk with other people, if you counsel other people, you share with other people, you advise other people, in all that counseling, always remember to point them towards Jesus Christ. Because I don't think we can deal with people's issues. I don't think we can deal with our own issues without Jesus Christ. I think doctors are brilliant. Love doctors. I think counselors are brilliant. Love counselors. I think pastors are brilliant. Love pastors, sort of. But all of them are useless, ultimately, without Jesus Christ. And I would say, if you are here this morning and you've got anger issues, as sometimes people euphemistically put it, Maybe you should admit to them. Maybe you should admit that you are just walking around, just cheesed off with people and cheesed off with everything and upset. Maybe you should come to Jesus with all your anger. And maybe you should also bring others. Elihu, I like his passion. I don't think he gets there. And we'll uh, maybe come on to that. Uh, next week perhaps as, as we continue to look at this. But I do think that ultimately he points us to the one who deals with all our anger and that is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. May God bless his word. Uh, Tim, will you come and lead us in prayer please?
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.